Our first reading today is a poem by Lucille Clifton, an African-American poet and educator who served for a time as the Poet Laureate of Maryland. I am accused of tending to the past as if I made it, as if I sculpted it with my own hands. I did not. This past was waiting for me when I came, a monstrous, unnamed baby, and I, with my mother's itch, took it to breast and named it history. She is more human now, learning languages every day, remembering faces, names, and dates. When she is strong enough to travel on her, on her own, beware, she will. Our second reading this morning is from the book Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith, which was published in 1949. Lillian Smith was a white Southern lesbian woman, and Killers of the Dream is a book of essays that challenge the racism and segregation of, of the era, arguing that it damages the souls of everyone. Using the the racial and ableist language of her era, she writes, something was wrong with a world that tells you that love is good and people are important and then forces you to deny love and humiliate people. I knew, though I would not for years confess it aloud, that in trying to shut the Negro race away from us, we have shut ourselves away from so many good, creative, honest, deeply human things in life. I began to understand slowly at first, but more clearly as the years passed, that the warped, distorted frame we have put around every Negro child from birth is around every white child also. Each is on a different side of the frame, but each is pinioned there. And I knew that what cruelty shapes and paralyzes the personality of one is as cruelly shaping and paralyzing the personality of the other. I began to see that though we may, as we acquire new knowledge, live through new experiences, examine old memories, gain the strength to tear the frame from us, Yet we are stunted and warped and in our lifetime cannot grow straight again any more than can a tree put in a steel-like twisting frame when young, grow tall and straight when the frame is torn away at maturity. Our third reading this morning is from Between the World and Me by ta Coates, published last year. Coates is an African-American journalist, and his book is a letter to his son about what it means to be black and male in America. This passage takes place while Coates is being interviewed on television. The interviewer asks him to explain his statement that white America's progress or the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. Coates writes, When the journalist asked me about my body, it was like she was asking me to awaken her from the most gorgeous dream. I have seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses and nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block associations, and driveways. The dream is tree houses and the Cub Scouts. 
The dream smells like peppermint but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for so long I've wanted to escape into the dream, to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, the bedding made from our bodies. And knowing this, knowing that the dream persists by warring with the known world, I was sad for the host. I was sad for all those families. I was sad for my country. But above all, in that moment, I was sad for you. This is the weekend that we remember Martin Luther King Jr. and it is a weekend ripe for storytelling. There are so many powerful stories about race, racism, and the civil rights movements of yesterday and today. Today I have just a few of those stories to share. The first story is from the 1950s. It is a story I learned through Rosemary Bray McNatt, a black Unitarian Universalist minister who is the president of Star King School for the Ministry, one of our denominational seminaries. Before that, she was my minister in New York. And before that, before she was a minister, she was a journalist employed by the New York Times Review of Books. She tells the following story. In the middle of my seminary education, my literary agent called with an intriguing proposition. Would I be willing to be considered as co-writer of Coretta Scott King's autobiography? She wanted to know. I was one of several people being considered, but the book's prospective editor was said to be partial to me. I was more than willing to talk about it, and a meeting between Mrs. King and myself was arranged at the editor's office. I didn't make the final cut of writers under consideration, but that is not why I tell this story. During an hour of wide-ranging conversation, I mentioned to Mrs. King that I was in seminary to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. What frankly surprised me was the look she gave me, one of respect and delight. Oh, I went to Unitarian churches for years, even before I met Martin, she told me, explaining that she had been, since college, a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was popular among Unitarians back then. And Martin and I went to Unitarian churches when we were in Boston. What surprised and saddened me most was what she said next. And though I am paraphrasing, the gist of it was this. We gave a lot of thought to becoming Unitarians at one time. But Martin and I realized we could never build a mass movement of black people if we were Unitarian. Coretta Scott King reflects, Martin and I realized we could never build a mass movement of black people if we were Unitarian. That was the decision they made in the 1950s. And what does that stir in you? When I first heard this story, I felt surprise and then some shame that we weren't quite good enough for them at that point. And upon further reflection, I know that whatever it makes me feel, it is the truth. It reflects the reality of the world. Martin Luther King Jr. would not have been as an effective leader for civil rights if he was serving a Unitarian Universalist congregation than he was serving where he served 
he would not have been as effective a leader serving our predominantly white, predominantly northern denomination. This is about social location. Social location is the combination of social identities and roles that shape how we view the world and how the world views us. In seminary, whenever I wrote an interpretive paper describing the way to read a certain passage of scripture or the right way to do theology, in my opinion, I was required to include a short paragraph about my social location. I would write that my perspective is shaped by my white racial identity, my American citizenship, being raised by parents who are both social workers, being Unitarian Universalist, being female, and any particular life experiences that felt relevant to what I was working on. It's a powerful and humbling exercise to remember that what we know as truth is shaped by one's identities, roles, and relationships. It's a powerful and humbling to remember that had the circumstances of our birth or the systematic oppressions of our culture, systemic oppressions of our culture, been different, the truth as we understand it would be different and that the circumstances of our birth shape our possibilities in powerful ways. There are times that I wish that explicitly naming social location was not just a seminary exercise, but happened more widely in our world. Could you imagine what our presidential debates would look like if this was part of how the candidates communicated? As someone who has inherited great wealth, my opinion on poverty is. <laughs> As someone who is male, this is what I think about women who've experienced sexual assault. The tone of our political discourse would be radically different. Now, another story about a person from a different social location also committed to racial justice. This is a story from the 1960s. Viola Liuzzo was a white woman, a student at Wayne State University, an activist, a spiritual seeker. And she was not, she was not raised in a spiritual tradition and converted to Roman Catholicism when she married her second husband. She was a mystic who sought a personal relationship with God. She was an activist who wanted to make the world more just and more loving. In her 40s, she began attending the first Unitarian Universalist Church in Detroit. She had found a place where she could be fully herself, and she became a member in 1964. Almost a year later, the voting rights campaign began in Selma, Alabama. Jimmy Lee Jackson, a black activist, was killed in late February 1965. Marches were organized and Martin Luther King called on clergy to attend. Perhaps you've seen how this story plays out, whether from living through it or from the movie Selma. Dozens of Unitarian Universalist ministers came, and the Reverend James Reeb was among them. He was attacked on March 9th and died two days later. He is one of our Unitarian martyrs. Viola Liuzzo said she wanted to be a part of this movement for justice and so made the long drive from Detroit to Selma, hoping that her family and her children would understand that she needed to be a part of this for the next week. Her role in Selma was to welcome and register volunteers 
and to make runs to the airport in her car. She participated in the final part of the voting rights march from Selma to Montgomery. And when that march ended, she and civil rights worker Leroy Moton drove five passengers back to Selma, and Viola then drove Moton back to Montgomery. Four members of the Ku Klux Klan saw Liuzzo and Moton stopped at a traffic light in Selma. They followed the car. Liuzzo attempted to drive away from the men pursuing her, and she was unsuccessful. She began singing freedom songs, like We Shall Overcome, as we sang earlier. Halfway between Selma and Montgomery, the Ku Klux Klan members pulled up alongside Liuzzo's car, and one of them shot her. She died instantly. Moten, her traveling companion, was un uninjured. Liuzzo's death brought even more national attention to the civil rights movement and the civil rights struggle, the voting rights effort in Selma. Reflecting entrenched attitudes about race, the nation responded to the deaths of Reverend James Reeb and Viola Liuzzo, the white Unitarian Universalist civil rights martyrs, in ways they didn't when black activist Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed days earlier. Perhaps it was because as the deaths accumulated, outrage grew. Perhaps the death of white people called the public and leaders to action in new ways. President Johnson called Liuzzo's widower, Jim, to offer condolences. He said, I don't think she died in vain because this is going to be a battle. All out, as far as I'm concerned. Jim responded, my wife died for a sacred battle, the rights of humanity. She had one concern and only one in mind. All men are created equal. That's what she believed. And she gave her life for that belief. Our next story is from last year. A year ago, December, I sat with Tasha, a member of the Unitarian Universalist congregation I served in Nashville before coming here, making costumes for the church's Christmas pageant. As we made halos and crowns, Tasha told me about what she'd been teaching her preschool-aged son. Tasha is the black mother of a black son, and I share this conversation with her permission. Tasha had, been, had told me that she had been teaching her enthusiastic, energetic four-year-old son to muffle that part of himself when he's in public. In the grocery store, she tells him he can't grab all his favorite foods and beg to put them in the cart. He can't jump and run and yell as much as his little body wants to. But why, Mom, this little boy asks and points out the white children are doing all the things that he is not allowed to. This was a hard conversation to hear, and the questions it raised linger. How do you explain racism to a four-year-old? How do you tell this boy that because he has a black body, he will be perceived as older, less innocent, and guiltier his whole life? That his enthusiastically grabbing his favorite brand of cereal will look like shoplifting, not playing. How do you tell him that his opportunities will be limited and people will not always see him for the playful kid that he is? 
Natasha tries to explain the unexplainable by talking about what she calls stinking thinking. Racism is just too big a word for this four-year-old. It isn't right, she tells him, but some people think that people with dark skin like ours are not as good as people with light skin. And that means we have to be extra careful to be good and follow the rules. It isn't right, it isn't fair, it just is. This story calls me to action. Perhaps the stories I've told this morning call you to action. Perhaps you are called to create a world where a black four-year-old can be his exuberant self in the grocery store. Perhaps you want to work for a church where the heirs of Martin Luther King Jr. can worship with us and build a mass movement of black people. Perhaps you feel inspired by Viola Liuzzo to devote yourself body and soul to our collective liberation. Perhaps the two thoughtful reflections on whiteness that were written 65 years apart compel you to further explore how whiteness is a dream or a steel-like twisting frame, a distortion of ourselves and our souls. Perhaps they compel you to, hap- to help awaken and free our white siblings. One of the good things, perhaps the only good thing about a problem as complicated and intractable as the systemic racism that undergirds our country and our culture, is that there are so many ways to work to dismantle it. Tenzin Gayatso, the 14th Dalai Lama in Tibetan Buddhism, writes, it is not enough to be compassionate. You must act. There are two aspects to action. One is to overcome the distortions and afflictions of your own mind. This action out of compassion. The other is more social, more public. When something needs to be done in the world to rectify the wrongs, if one is really concerned with benefiting others, one needs to be engaged and involved. So what do we do as a predominantly white congregation? not exclusively white, but predominantly. We can start by overcoming the distortions and afflictions of our own minds. We listen, we learn. We read ta Coates and others writing thoughtfully about race. We follow black Twitter to learn what black activists are writing and thinking about. We seek out news written by and for people of color. When people in our lives tell us about their experiences of racism, we listen. If we haven't yet, we attend an understanding and and analyzing systemic racism workshop put on by our race, eliminating race and claiming celebrating equality. I know many of you in this church have already done this, and if you haven't, I invite you to join me at the training in February. There is a refrain in the Black Lives Matter movement, the modern racial justice movement started by Alicia Garza, Patrice Coolers, and Opal Tometi, black queer feminist activists after Trayvon Martin was killed by a neighborhood watch volunteer in Florida. This movement has grown and brought more attention to black people who have been killed by police, vigilantes, and while in police custody. 
One of the refrains in this movement is stay woke. Stay woke. Stay awake. That is, keep paying attention. Those of us who live with privilege can drift back into the dream very easily. I know I sometimes stop paying attention in ways that are impossible for people who face oppression daily. In our day-to-day lives, those of us who have been socialized as white can easily drift back into the dream of perfect houses with nice lawns, Memorial Day cookouts, block associations, and driveways, the dream that smells like peppermint but tastes like strawberry shortcake. But we need to stay woke. We're being asked to stay woke to the realities that so many live with. Can we do this? Of course, learning and listening and staying woke are important, but they are not enough. The Dalai Lama reminds us that when something needs to be done in the world to rectify the wrongs, if one is really concerned with benefiting others, one needs to be engaged and involved. Again, systemic racism is such a big and thorny problem, there are so many ways to act. For those of you who have been to the ERASE training, please come to the gathering at 12.30 today in room 19. We'll be talking about paths forward and transforming our congregation into an anti-racist institution. And if you can't come to the event, please, keep, please, li- please listen and look for the plans that come out of this meeting. Also, Isaac, the congregation-based community organizing effort that we are a part of, has decided to make racism one of its focus issues for the next several years. There will be opportunities to be involved in challenging and dismantling racism in our, in our community. Please keep looking for those chances. And there are so many other actions we can take individually and collectively to dismantle the systemic racism that lives in our culture and in each of us, to stay woke and help others awaken. We can become allies, followers, and supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. We can speak up with people when people, especially the people we love and respect, say things that reflect the racism that we all live with. I know that's really hard. It's often much easier to just let that moment go. And I know I'm guilty of that. And the other part of that is when someone lets us know that we are the ones giving voice to the racism that we all live with, we can respond with humility and curiosity. We Unitarian Universalists and so, so many others are committed to dismantling and unlearning a system of racial hierarchy that has been centuries in the making. It is hard, important, and painful work that will take generations We will not see the beloved community in our lifetime, that reign of love and justice. But as we commit and recommit to that vision, we need to offer as much forgiveness and grace as we can muster along the way. We must act with courage, grace, and forgiveness because that is the only way through. So on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, may we revere the holy stories and the challenging stories of the past and let them inspire our future action. May we stay woke to the world 
around us in all its pain and all its promise. And may we offer one another and ourselves grace, courage, and forgiveness. And may we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.